So apparently January is just like idiot coup attempt month now. Hey, <laughs> like, that was really interesting. You know, I was watching it and I'm like, huh, almost everything about this is really reminiscent of something I can't place my finger on. You know, just like... like uh... <laughs> that's honestly why I kind of question how much effort like the CIA put into this one. I feel like they were mostly just like watching all the like Bolsonaristas who were just deciding they wanted to copy January 6th. And we're like, mm-hmm. well, this shit isn't going to work. And like, we don't really have the resources with all the bullshit we're doing right now in Ukraine to really handle a proper coup. But you know, if these idiots want to try, we can like, I don't know, throw them a little bit of help. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's basically what it feels like. It feels really, really half-assed. Yeah. Because, <laughs> like, also, also, like, Lula seems pretty competent, like, in well, terms of being able to prevent this from being too serious. Lula wasn't even there. Like, it wasn't like he had to be evacuated or anything. Like, he was in a different region. Like, yeah. I, I, I don't know. I was watching it on, like... Uh, some on some brazil newscast because someone that i'm you know comrades with posted it and i'm sitting there i'm well first what i'm doing is i got google translate up so that i can translate portuguese into english so that i can understand what what's going on but like it was like a half hour of them breaking things and then by that time the federal forces came in and just walked everyone out yeah, it seems yeah. like it was a bunch of dumb guys being equally as ineffective at doing whatever they were trying to do as the original January 6th. I guess when something is already a farce, there's nowhere to go from there. What? Well, yeah, you exactly. You just repeat it's it. Like first is farce, second is stupider farce, this time yeah. in Portuguese. Like, yeah. <laughs> like, I get, like, theoretically, I guess their, I, their whole plan, although that seems too... Uh, too much gravitas of a word to even really give to this, like seem to be like, if we make a big enough of a fuss and cause enough chaos, the military will be forced to overthrow Lula. And I'm like, I don't like, don't you think he, they would have done that while Bolsonaro was still in the country? Yeah. Uh, I just remember (laughs) when I was watching some analysis on it, it's like, Oh, the problem was, is that, uh, that, that, January 6th had is that they didn't get them at the exact right point. Well, now the Bolsonaristas are going to come just as Lula is get- entering the office. And I'm like, it's the fucking 8th. It's yeah. Like, <laughs> Way too late. Yeah. He's been in office for over a week at this point. Well, and, and the funny thing is, is like, we'll see what happens. Obviously, it's still a very like rapidly evolving situation. But like, I, I honestly, the response is going to tell us, I think, a lot about what to expect from this term out of Lula, Mm -hmm. because like if, if he takes what I, well, that's the, you know, exactly. Because that's the thing. If he like is actually serious about this, these idiots have handed him like on a silver platter, the perfect opportunity to clean house, Mm -hmm. to just be like, okay, yeah. All of these, you know, state officials who are supposed to be doing stuff and didn't do anything. All of those people are charged with treason. Like Hell yeah. every single one of them. And Please. by the and we're replacing like the national police chief and like the military police chief with my own people because fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> like, Hell well, yeah. I hope and so. And I kinda I get the impression from Lula that, you know, this not being his first rodeo has 
kind of changed things. He's going to be yeah. like a lot more forward and aggressive about handling these kinds of issues because like, I don't know, maybe being overthrown and jailed and then having to claw your way back to the presidency kind of changes a man. Like we're, we're dealing with punished Lula now. Yeah, like, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he just like comes out to his next press conference with an eye patch for no reason. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, but yeah, I mean, ultimately this whole thing just seems incredibly stupid, which I, I, I mean, frankly is kind of a relief for once. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, I mean, I, I, when I could say this is a failed coup after 30 minutes, like, yeah. <laughs> like that felt Yeah, good. absolutely. I know, yeah. like, especially after, you know, the, the like, horrors of an actual successful coup, like, in, in 2019, in Peru, which, of yeah. course, was then, oh, yeah. then defeated. Or, yeah, mm-hmm. or the one going on in Peru right now, which yeah. isn't getting anywhere near the amount of coverage because the CIA is actually putting resources into that one. Right. <laughs> like, Despite yeah. the fact that protesters there tried to take over an airport yesterday. <laughs> I mean, yeah. they didn't succeed, but that's huge energy. Um, yeah. yeah. But- well... That brings us to a good place on it. And speaking of coming to good places on things. everybody your favorite uh, news and polit oh wait no we're a labor podcast so <laughs> my name is john i'm dan and i'm lena and we are entirely listener supported so thank you so much for supporting us on patreon uh if you're not in the discord already go ahead and hop in there if you don't have stickers yet and you are a patron you can just message us on patreon and we'll get those to you and you can leave a five-star review of the show wherever you think it will help uh we're gonna start by giving a quick congratulations to the grad workers at yale who have won a blowout union election yeah so we just gotta this stuff this is we got a couple real quick news bits that happened today, the day that we are recording, which is uh, Monday, bits. January 9th. But yeah, so we're not really going to go into a ton of detail because this just happened today, but we just wanted to throw out a congratulations to the the grad workers at Yale. We talked a few weeks ago about this organizing drive that really has has like a whole decade of, of history behind it. And they had mentioned, you know, and we talked about this when we discussed the drive, that they had a super majority of support, but they were being forced to go through the election process anyway. And, well, the votes finally came in today, and boy, were they right about the super majority. <laughs> yeah, suck it, Yale. <laughs> Is there a higher tier than super majority? Is there, like, an like, ultra majority or something? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, like hyper majority, where you, like, approached unanimous, but you're doing that, like, halfway, halfway, halfway thing. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, what is that? <laughs> Zeno's paradox of motion or something? Some, something like that. <laughs> but, yeah, so uh, the votes came in, and uh, workers voted... 1,860 votes to uh, 179 with a 91% margin of victory to join Unite here. So, hey, congratulations to the grad workers at Yale and really looking forward to see uh, how y'all do in the fight for that first contract. Right. Well, and I want to just tell those 179 future Democrats and Republicans in office, <laughs> go fuck yourself. Yeah, those, are, those are all extended members of the Bush family. <laughs> yeah. 
Jeb is in there six times. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And then we have another quick follow up with the nurses strike that we were talking about uh, last week. And so 7,000 nurses in New York City have gone on strike. There were there are there are less than we had talked about before because uh, a significant portion of of them actually got to a tentative agreement which put the strike on hold. Uh, it doesn't mean that they are going to accept the agreement, but for the moment, it is just the uh, seven thousand nurses at three Montefiore hospitals and at Mount Sinai Hospital. So they don't have a deal yet, and they are on the picket lines as of this morning. Yeah, there was all sorts of like really great video coming out of this because, you know, it's 7,000 nurses, even though it's down from the 17 that we had talked about who could potentially strike at, when we talked about this last week. 7,000 nurses is still a lot of people, mm-hmm. <laughs> even in a city as big as New York. So, yeah, there, there are all sorts of crazy s- scenes from the picket lines. We're super excited. Everybody, tons and tons of community support. I saw like teamsters out there teachers out there firefighters out there chris smalls is out there on the mm-hmm. picket lines so yeah it, it really great to see all the the big community support coming out there and just to let folks know it is at montefiore moses montefiore weiler and montefiore hutch are the three facilities where they were striking today as well as the mount sinai hospital at madison and 99th and those three montefiore locations are all in the bronx uh, and so, yeah, definitely encourage any of our listeners who are in the New York City area to show your support at the picket lines for these nurses. And, you know, of course, once we've had a little more time <laughs> for stuff to happen on the picket lines, we will keep folks posted as the strike develops. Absolutely. <clears throat> well, and speaking of strikes developing, mm-hmm. we're going to follow up with Case New Holland, who have been on the strike line for over eight months at this point. And Case New Holland has done something interesting which is something they keep doing, which is giving a last, best, and final offer, which is interesting when you get a bunch of last, best, and final (laughs) offers because last and final are in the name. (laughs) Yeah, I keep being confused because I read the, uh, there was all these tweets, you know, from all the various people I follow for this strike and Mm -hmm. and all this stuff about, oh, there's a last, best, and final offer. There's going to be a vote. I'm like, I swear I heard about a previous last, best, and final offer. And, and and as you said, those all three of those words certainly indicate that there will be no change afterwards, mm-hmm. and yet there has been. <laughs> yeah, and they claim, okay, so in this new offer, they're like, look, we made improvements, but UAW leadership was like, hey, actually, you have continually refused to offer workers anything approaching an actually fair contract. And Yasin Mahdi, president of UAW Local 180 in Wisconsin, said, quote, I think you need the Hubble telescope to see the upgrades. It needs to get voted down. This is nothing more than a formality to vote this waste of paper down. I love that. You need a (laughs) Hubble telescope to see the upgrades. That's incredible. Uh, I mean, like, that is, I guess, what they're saying is, you know, since the company put this quote unquote last best and final offer that they actually do they do need to put it to the vote for the membership but uh generally this this uh strike has been uh more on the lines of why would i even bother uh mm-hmm. yeah. to to like give the workers something that i know that they don't want and right. as we saw they did vote it down 55% to 45% so yeah yeah, yeah. well and I feel like it was actually like, well, because one of the things that's, that I think is important to note for this strike specifically 
And I, I definitely agree, John. I've, I, they're pretty much everything consist. One of the consistent things about following the strike has been looking forward to reading the statements from Yasin Mahdi, the, yeah. the head of, of UAW local One Eighty, because he's had fantastic rhetoric and just statements throughout this whole thing, just mm-hmm. calling out case for their bullshit offers. And, and I think the thing that it's important to highlight here is that the reason that this got a decent amount of press, you know, compared to anything else about the strike is that during this whole time period, as we mentioned, I think the last time we covered the case strike case keeps buying ads in like the local paper saying, Hey, you know, we offered a great deal to the workers, but the, the terrible evil leadership of the UAW locals refuse to take our excellent offer to the workers. They won't even let them vote on it. <laughs> My, yeah. we offered a great deal ad is provoking a lot of questions already answered by the ad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so I, I love that the, basically they just decided the leadership was like, fine. Okay. We'll call your bluff. You keep saying that your contract offer is so good. Well, mm-hmm. we have correct, you know, explained the offer to our membership and why we're not bothering to bring it to them to the vote. So fine. We will have a vote and we'll see what happens. And yeah, as you said, Lena, the workers agreed with the leadership and we're like, yeah, this offer does suck ass, even though, again, these are workers who have been out on strike for eight months. Mm-hmm. And that is a long ass time to be out on strike, dealing with only strike pay, having to, you know, worry about losing your benefits and 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 how you're gonna be able to get through the, you know, the week without your regular paycheck. And yet still 55% of the workers voted this down, which I think speaks to the fact that their leadership has been doing a good job, I think, at the bargaining table, at least on the end of, like, correctly representing to the workers whether the offer was actually worth taking to them. And so I think it's good to see that validated. Yeah, and I imagine that, you know, I mean, because it is a slightly, you know, narrow margin, but I imagine that the 45% is mostly just, like, a long strike is hard. And I I don't Mm -hmm. imagine that it's necessarily that those workers wanted to vote for the contract because they liked the contract, but because a long strike is hard. Yeah, absolutely. It's incredibly draining. Um, So, yeah, I totally get why plenty of people who would would see that and be like, look, no, I don't think this is a good contract, but, like, this is really, really hard. And and so, like, yeah, I totally get that. But, yeah, so that's what I think is even more impressive about the fact that, again, it's been eight months and you still have a majority of workers by 10% margin who are just like, no, this deal sucks. We need a real raise, a real contract that actually has real benefits in it. And and despite eight months of, of expensive propaganda from the company and hiring armed guards to harass people and doing all this bullshit trying to undermine the solidarity... None of that mattered, and the workers have de- have demonstrated once again that they're not going to accept wage raises below inflation, soaring health care premiums, and unfair scheduling. So, you know, uh, case your last your imp- supposedly improved last best and final offer is going to need to get improved a little bit more. <laughs> <laughs> I it's I, I love the mental image of Case New Holland like a, a frustrated home producer trying to save their session like session 1. Session 1 final.mp4. Session 1 real actual final. <laughs> session 1 last best and final offer.mp4. <laughs> 
last message and final offer. Yeah, three, four, five. <laughs> and then just hastily going back when you're finally done and renaming everything so nobody ever sees that you did that. <laughs> yeah, and like most home producers, the changes between the different mixes are totally, there's none. They're, they're, it's the same. You tweaked nothing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I turned the bass down half a decibel. That's good, yeah, right? Good work. <laughs> yeah, so, so solidarity, you know, with the caseworkers as, as they continue their fight for an actually fair contract. Absolutely. And uh, let's move on to a company making a moderately good decision. And this is going to blow your mind, guys. It's Microsoft. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, mean, I got to say, this is a rare good news story about Microsoft. <laughs> I mean, it's a real one-two whammy that a company is uh, voluntarily recognizing their union at card check and also that Microsoft made a good choice ever. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I definitely, so I guess just to get into it, there's a 300 QA workers who worked at a company owned by Microsoft called ZeniMax that we had mentioned before, and Microsoft actually did stick by their their neutrality agreement that they signed mm-hmm. with the CWA. This doesn't necessarily mean that the contract's going to be easy. It doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily mean mm-hmm. that like there aren't going to be real struggles. Uh, if anything, I, I imagine that it's going to be Microsoft's like goal to ki- kind of um, make the union as ineffective as possible by being like, "Oh, everything's easy. You don't have to fight. You can just like lay back and let the let the union leadership do everything." Kind of play into the hand of of like you know class collaborationism and I, I imagine that that's kind of there and you know what i may be being cynical about this but i don't care because honestly <laughs> i still think fuck microsoft like they can do one thing sure. right and still be a piece of shit uh, yeah well i mean right? we heard from one of their senior testers wayne dayberry explaining what pushed them to unionize to the ap and wayne said quote throughout the industry the quality assurance departments are treated poorly paid very little and treated as replaceable cogs there's not a lot of dignity involved in it that's something we're hoping to show people in the industry who are in like situations that if we can do it they can do it as well so it does seem like whatever microsoft's plan of attack is here the workers have it pretty well figured out that they're doing this for the right reasons i don't think they're gonna give up on pushing they also said uh some of the workers said that if microsoft's neutrality agreement did help encourage the union drive reducing some fears of retaliation and union busting that they may have otherwise dissuade that may have otherwise dissuaded some workers from making their pro-union views known cwa lauded microsoft for sticking to the agreement and spokesperson beth allen told abc news quote they definitely have stood by their word all along it's pretty momentous microsoft is an outlier in the way tech companies have been behaving uh, people have said that before but it usually isn't positive yeah I mean, <laughs> it's it's true I mean, it is a little, it's an outlier considering how bad things are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, it is and, a testament I mean, to how fucked up things are. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I think still, uh, it, I do still definitely believe that the only reason Microsoft did this was as a cynical ploy to try and get the FTC not to block their merger with right. Activision, which of course has not worked. But I mean, I will say, I, I honestly didn't expect them to hold up their end of the bargain on it at all and they've mm-hmm. at least cleared that incredibly low hurdle <laughs> yeah that they actually did the thing that they signed up and said they would do um but i do think you hit the key point there on they did stay neutral in the election let's see what happens in the first contract 
bargaining. But for now, you know, you have uh, senior QA tester Skylar Hinnant, who uh, is, you know, now now a member of the new union at ZeniMax, who hailed the union victory saying, quote, this is an empowering victory that allows us to protect ourselves and each other in a way we never could without a union. Our hope and belief is that this is the year in which game workers across the country exercise their power and reshape the industry as a whole, end quote. We're finally going to get that tweet. I want uh, <laughs> worse, what is it, shorter games with worse graphics made yeah. by people who are paid more to do less, and I'm not kidding. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> that's what we need, and, and, and that's something I think we can take away from this as an unambiguously good thing, is that, look, even if Microsoft just completely abandons it and goes full cynical and is like, oh, we said we'd be neutral in the election. Mm-hmm. We didn't say we would be neutral in the contract negotiations, <laughs> even if they do the full heel turn there. I think the fact that we now have a 300-person QA union, by far the biggest union in the video game industry in this country, that alone by itself is valuable. Like, it, you know, First of all, of course, we hope that Microsoft is neutral and does bargain fairly during first contract agreements. But just the fact alone that you, know, you have a union of some of the worst paid, mo- like people with the worst benefits in the industry – at a pretty big company, like ZeniMax is a big publisher. Like they put out a lot of stuff. So uh, like, yeah, I think this is a, it's a really big stepping stone for unionization in games as a whole. And it's going to definitely be very interesting to see how this process goes of the first contract bargaining, especially to compare it to say how we are used to seeing first contract bargaining go at so many other companies. Yeah, I I am very I am hopeful. Like I I mean like I said, I don't trust Microsoft, but I do trust the workers and I think that mm-hmm. if anything this is going to encourage more people to join unions in Microsoft, uh, you know, unionize them all. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so I mean, speaking of unionizing them all, uh so back in August, workers at Chicago nonprofit LGBTQ healthcare provider, Howard Brown Health, successfully unionized with the Illinois Nurses Association. Uh, The healthcare company has 475 workers, and they were motivated to unionize by really high rates of turnover, increased workloads without an increase in staff, and really low non-standardized wages across the, the different positions at the healthcare facilities. Unfortunately... Uh, they did see quite the the heel turn from their managers after mm-hmm. their union election. And just a few months after they won their election back in August, workers at Howard Brown are now being forced to strike just to keep the jobs that they just unionized. <laughs> um, yeah, so following their first win, Howard Brown management announced that they would be firing 100 workers, uh, which is a pretty significant portion of the workforce, effective the first week of the year, uh, workers were cut off from their work accounts without warning. Per reporting from Jacobin, one worker lost access to their account while in the middle of a call with a patient. Uh, so, I mean, th- this has forced the workers to actually, you know, go to industrial action to protect their their workforce and not have the intensification of labor conditions. Yeah, and one of the really sickening things about this is that during bargaining for the first contract, management proposed these cuts as a quote-unquote voluntary separation with one week of severance pay and a month of health care. Those are insulting scraps. Like, like, like how, 
how can you with a straight face propose that to somebody as severance? I'm like, I, I would have expected that that was like what you were legally required to provide mm-hmm. in our incredibly shitty labor laws. <laughs> Wow, yeah, which, is it's not, which is not wild. the case. That's no, actually worse than that. But. Yeah. <clears throat> and the company's saying that the cuts are necessary because otherwise they will have a $12 million budget collapse. But the union, unsurprisingly, has pointed out that the company refuses to open its books and prove their accounting. Show us the math, please. Uh, and this is also all happening while Howard Brown, CEO, gave himself a $100,000 raise. Mm-hmm. They, they operate 11 clinics across the city serving 30,000 patients, and workers have pointed to the speed at which management moved to attack workers rather than find other ways to cut costs while preserving services. And it's like, I'm sure there's a billion ways you could find that fucking money. This is, you know, it's, it's, it, you're a fool if you think this is anything other than a direct attack on workers. This is clear as day. Absolutely. I mean, the workers then held a rally to protest the layoffs, pointing out that the existing staff are already overworked and slashing jobs that only make the jobs even harder for them to serve the the patients and the people who actually need this care. And, you know, the protest did have a, an effect, but it dropped that number of 100 workers to be fired down to 60. Uh, and, you know, they're not going to accept that loss either and so the union launched a strike starting on january 3rd and speaking to jacobin julian maduño a uh, representative of the workers bargaining committee called out to ma- uh, called out management for not living up to their supposed progressive vision of the company saying quote it's hard to say that this is an organization that believes in liberation when they want to slash programs that serve the community, not to mention the community they serve is often people that work there. End quote. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's really fucked up. Like, first off, the fact that they're like, well, look, we have to make these cuts or we're going to, we're going to like lose $12 million. We're going to have a $12 million budget deficit. And it's just like, oh, wow, that's a huge amount of money. Mm-hmm. And you want to cut like a fifth of the staff, basically. Cool. Well, all right. Well, show us your books and, and we'll, let's figure out, boy, we are really in an awful financial situation. Like, <laughs> oh, no, uh, no, no, we can't. We can't show you the books. <laughs> we can't. We can't. You just have to trust us. <laughs> yeah, it's also like, does, does saying you're going to have a budget collapse if you don't do this, like scare your investors or shareholders or anything? Or are you definitely speaking out both right. sides of your mouth? Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, like, they didn't even are you, pull is, out the classic, uh, no, you're just, you're, we're just trying to be competitive in the industry, which is the yeah. one that I, we always hear because that is always another excuse to be like, no, we're not going to open our books because we have some other bullshit excuse. But in this case, they're like, no, we have a financial shortfall. Trust us. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, and so like the union is, and I would say correctly terming, they termed their strike last week as an unfair labor practice strike rather than, you know, an, an economic strike because mm-hmm. of the company planning to move ahead with these layoffs without actually negotiating with the union over them. Uh, the company of course claims, Oh no, that's not an unfair labor practice. We're allowed to do that because we were at loggerheads and we couldn't come to an agreement. And so, you know, it says right there, if that happens, we're allowed to proceed with layoffs. And the, uh, but the union also has pointed out that because the, the company has not opened their books, they have not actually provided proof Mm -hmm. they need to do these layoffs for financial reasons. And to your point, John, about the fact that there's millions of ways they could have come up with these millions of dollars, 
the union was more than happy to propose a ton of different places that the company could cut spending without slashing jobs and thus slashing services. For instance, they propose selling unused properties that the company owns. That's another thing. Well, we're going to have a $12 million budget surplus. You own a bunch of empty buildings. What if you sold those? Oh, well, we can't do that. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Like, come on. So so now they're also a property management company. Yeah. Every company is, but yeah. (laughs) Yeah, And, and so like they also propose things like, hey, maybe don't buy incredibly expensive furniture. Buy cheaper furniture. And that may sound like a small amount, but when you look into how much office furniture costs... It is uh, a lot of money. <laughs> go on the go on the Herman Miller website sometime. Yeah. It'll blow your fucking mind. It's <laughs> true. Yeah. And then, of course, the union also brought out what probably would save the place a ton of money, and they should probably do this anyway, uh, cutting executive salaries by 15%, which, mm. of course, you know, didn't get much traction with I the I bet you uh, could expand side. the staff if you did that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, for sure. So from, from Tuesday the 3rd last week till Thursday the 5th, workers struck at seven different Howard Brown facilities across Chicago. And of course, you know, this being a progressive outlet that focuses on serving the LGBTQ community, uh, you would expect, if you didn't listen to this show, <laughs> that the management would just be like, okay, well, there's a strike, whatever, it's the workers' right to strike. Instead, of course, you know, management hired security guards at their Anderson Brown Elephant facility, uh, who then called Chicago PD on the picketers in an attempt to intimidate them into breaking their strike. I thought they Uh, had a budget shortfall. Why are they hiring these fucking security guards? Right? (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot of holes in this. We have nowhere else we can cut from our budget claim. Uh, thankfully, though, the, uh, the the call to the police was ineffective at breaking the strike, and there was a supportive local alderman who happened to be at the picket line during this and who just talked to the police and told them to leave. Um, but this shows the depths that the management of this supposedly progressive firm will go to to attack their workers. And so one thing I did want to point out with all the media that I was just mostly on Twitter, like uh, stuff of pictures and videos from the, the picket line, great energy on the picket line from these Howard Brown health folks. I also love that they tweeted out like a big picture of like union workers at the, the, the picket lines. And it was just captioned. We are the union, the gayest union. Hell yeah. (laughs) Just like huge energy. And they had a chant that I really loved that they were doing on the picket line, which is they drive Tesla's. We ride the bus. Want to save money? Start with them. Not us. (laughs) Yeah. That's pretty fucking good. That's really good. I, I like that. That's very. And a jab yeah, at Tesla and, owners always, always a bonus, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, and and they of course you know they had as we see with so many of these you know healthcare strikes, despite all the rhetoric that we get from management, tons of patients also join the workers on the picket line to show their support. The community showed out both in person and materially. I was very like this is impressive. They raised fifty thousand dollars for the striking workers in just a few days. Wow. So I think that is a really good indication of like how important what these workers do, their job is, and how valued it is by the community that they were able to raise that much money that quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and it was only a three-day strike, but the workers say that they're going to continue to fight to preserve these wor- these jobs, and they filed unfair labor practices with the Illinois uh, Labor Board, uh, 19 of them to be exact, and so we're really hoping that the uh, NLRB actually responds to this petition from the workers. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think it's pretty clear 
that at least from everything I've seen in the reporting on this case, that the uh, company has not met the threshold required to justify firing workers without negotiating with the union over it. So, I, I mean, I think that the workers have a shot of, of winning that case. It is just very unfortunate that they've got to go through that, as you know, people are well aware, very long and drawn-out process to go through the NLRB. So in the meantime, I wouldn't really be shocked if we see some more similar, like, couple-a-day strikes uh, to try and keep that pressure on the management. But, of course, all our solidarity with the Howard Brown workers. Absolutely. Uh, well, and now we're going to go on down to Texas, to Fort Worth specifically, where News Guild workers at the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, who unionized back in 2020, have finally gotten a contract after an incredibly long two-year struggle just to get that first contract. So after a nearly month-long strike in December, the workers were able to finally come to an agreement and signed that contract this week after negotiations between workers and the paper's parent company, McClatchy. <laughs> I'm yeah. sorry. Okay. The paper's parent company, McClatchy, went nowhere for so long, the union launched a strike on November 28th in protest of the refusal to bargain in good faith. Due to the weakening of the print journalism industry, this was the first strike at a Texas newspaper in decades. And during the strike, the company attempted to continue operations by hiring part-time scabs and reprinting stories from other McClatchy-owned papers, but lost nearly all of their local coverage. The company cut workers' health care from the first day of the strike showing just how much they care about the workers. It's absolutely wild how often uh, companies are just like, okay, first day of the strike, we're cutting off your health benefits, we're cutting off your access to everything. We're it's like so punitive and it's it's like a toddler throwing yeah. a fit a little bit. Yeah, and it, it's one of those tactics that I personally like, I really question, even from a capitalist perspective, from, from the boss's perspective, I question the wisdom of that move because mm -hmm. in the short term, I get the tactical thinking. The idea is, you know, if they take you take away their health care, it's going to be even harder for them to stay out on strike. It's going to put more pressure on people wanting to end the strike early, and it's going to make it less likely their strike will be able to maintain its momentum. But the act of doing that, of stripping your workers of their health care, and of doing it on the very first day of the strike. So you can't pretend like, look, we've been we've been out of operation for months now. We just can't afford to do this. You're doing this on day one. Mm -hmm. So there's none of that. You have made the relationship between you and your employees adversarial like forever. Yeah. Well, <laughs> which like we and we know, of course, that that relationship has always been adversarial. But one of the things that like, you know, well, the reasons that we have HR departments and management training school and all of this stuff is to hide that fact. It's mm -hmm. it, that's one of the things that's like basically what the bourgeoisie pays most management to do is to hide the fact that the, the relationship between workers and management is inherently adversarial but by doing this sort of thing in strikes you just say that openly to the workers that it's mm -hmm. like we hate you <laughs> yeah <laughs> like, well and it's it's an outgrowth of the way the company has always been treating the workers too because like the the key issue that they were forced to strike over was wages so the star telegram has had a huge amount of turnover because they're one of those industries where a lot of people are eager to work in the field and they exploit the hell out of that so they get to a place like the star telegram they find out that with the meager salary 
salaries that are being offered up. They can't make ends meet. They can't pay for anything. And so in their statement on launching their strike, the union said, quote, low wages, hostile working conditions, and a hemorrhaging industry have pushed journalists to the brink, including senior reporters with deep knowledge and connections in the community. And it's wild because it's like, yeah, it's it's like the entire industry has just become like run on shoestrings like when they were printing articles from other publication Mm -hmm. areas in this that's a that's an incredibly weak tactic you're going to lose a lot of readership really fast yeah and i mean if if anybody's local paper has been taken over by gannett Mm -hmm. (laughs) which mine has (laughs) the, the, the providence journal is a shell of what it used to be because it's been basically private equityed by by gannett to completely make render it trash mm-hmm. uh like i have to use the boston globe for sources on stuff that happens in providence because the providence journal just basically is uh, like real estate paper now <laughs> yeah and and so many of these newspaper holding companies have done that same thing and and, and so it's it, and i think plenty of people who if you go to just your local papers website have i'm sure noticed over the past five ten years a huge drop off not just in quality but in just the number of local stories because there's so many of these places that are just firing people and it becomes like really hard to find out what's going on like in your city unless you have you know if you live in chicago or la or new york or something you've got a million papers or whatever but most of the rest of the country like there's only a couple of local papers and so like for instance here at fort worth when they went on strike and they're like oh we'll just we'll bring in stories from other papers in texas it's like well okay you can do that, but you're also not going to have any stories about what's going on in Fort Worth. Mm-hmm. So why are anybody who live in Fort Worth going to bother to read your paper? Yeah, there's no news in it. Well, it's yeah. it's kind of like um, in in Pittsburgh. This isn't even in our notes, but like the Post Gazette just bought the city paper, mm-hmm. and oh, the yeah. workers at the Post Gazette are like, "You have the money to buy the city paper, but you can't meet our demands." <laughs> Fuck <Right>. you, like. <laughs> Yeah, well, and I mean, like, there's also the pervasiveness of, like, local news just, like, having, like, what what is it, like, scripted stories that they push to every single program throughout the mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, like Sinclair. I mean, Sinclair, yeah, the Sinclair-style model, and I mean, I imagine that this is kind of just an extension of that down to the newspaper level. Yeah, well, I mean, we yeah. heard from uh, chair of the Fort Worth News Guild and social co- justice reporter Kaylee Johnson, who told the Texas Standard, quote, we formed this union with the intention of trying to preserve what is left of the Star Telegram so it continue so it can continue its legacy. McClatchy seems utterly uninterested in doing that. McClatchy will come on calls and company managers will talk about how they're making more revenues. We're not seeing that trickle down to any of us, end quote. And it's like, yeah, I mean, local papers have like a real legacy and people who work there want to preserve that. But you have parent companies who basically just have a bunch of finance bros coming in and saying like, we need to figure out how to sell more ad space, you know? Well, yeah. And, and this is one of those issues that I feel like, like being like, oh, print journalism is dying. What a new news. Nobody's mm-hmm. ever said that before. But I think it's important to highlight this stuff because this is yet another example of how capitalism doesn't work. Like, this is the thing, you know, you always hear people be like, oh, communism doesn't work, blah, 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 blah. It'll be, or it only works on paper. Capitalism doesn't even work on paper. Like, yeah. li- literally, in this case, it, <laughs> it, it, this system cannot support 
a series of newspapers because the profit incentive is so strong that they that you know you have all these private equity companies come in they strip the newspapers for parts turn them into basically like what if we had a print version of zillow mm-hmm. and that's like all the paper is now yeah, and there just is no more local news because the market has determined that's not profitable. I love when I go to a newspaper stand and it's just the New York Times and 18 different copies of the Penny Saver. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. the union did see an outpouring of community support during the strike, including a $10,000 donation from the local firefighters union. Workers Hell ended yeah. their strike after 24 days on December 22nd after seeing significant movement on wages in the co- in from the company and for the first time since the forming of their union strikes work folks originally the workers proposed right. a minimum sa- salary of $57,000 a year uh, the company initially had uh, refused to budge from their proposal of 45,000 well, with the strike, the company has improved their new offer to go up another 5000 up to $50,000. And, I mean, that's a pretty significant gain for this, yeah. for this strike. Yeah, absolutely. And, and workers also forced movement on a couple other issues. They want more inclusive language for parental leave, and they want expanded bereavement leave as well. So after their, you know, following their strike and seeing the movement from the company, basically the workers forcing the company to improve their offer workers finally found that the, the contract was, was good enough and, and the workers were able to vote on it and they voted unanimously to ratify their new contract. So, I mean, that's a two years is a long ass time mm-hmm. to fight for a contract. So, you know, incredible job. Like, and, and, and one of the things I also love though, is they didn't just, they're not just taking a victory lap after this strike and after the win, which they'd be totally justified in doing, but they've taken what I think is a very material analysis of their position on this, where so you have like the union put out a statement after their again, this is after ratifying their first contract after a successful strike. So most of these statements we get from unions are like, aha, we did it. Like it, thanks to all the workers for their solidarity. And you know, it's got all that good boilerplate stuff in it too. But it's then it's got stuff like this where they said, quote, we had some wins, and we are proud of our unit for fighting against a corporation that prioritizes profits over people. But we want to be clear. McClatchy refused to implement policies that would have made our newsroom a more equitable, better place for our staff and community. Forcing the company to move even an inch required tremendous fight. We hope McClatchy is ready for our contract renewal because our resolve is not depleted. Oh, they hit him with the end question mark. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Yeah. And and that, that level of focus and and, uh, of like having a really solid, good perspective on, on how, on where they're situated, like with the relationship between the workers and management, Mm -hmm. I think extremely clear eyed analysis from the workers there and, and very impressive stuff like forcing the new contract, but also understanding that fight's going to continue right into that next contract uh, negotiation. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And moving to what is one of the larger stories that happened this week is a pretty intense one because there has to do with worker injury, that pretty serious one. Uh, The, 
you know, people have probably been following the NFL a little bit. Even if you're not into sports, this was kind of a big deal. This week, uh, sports fans watched in horror as yet another young athlete nearly died on the football field, this time during a Bills-Bangles game. Uh, after a relatively routine tackle, Bills safety DeMar Hamlin rose to his feet and nearly immediately collapsed on the field. Players, coaches, and fans alike watched fearfully as medics were forced to restart Hamlin's heart on the field before he could be transported to a nearby hospital for treatment. Thankfully, he has since regained consciousness and has been able to speak with his family and teammates from the hospital, but his case is yet another of a long line of unending trauma dished out by the violence of the NFL and this week and the weakness of policies to protect players. Yeah, so I mean this was a if anybody was, you know, if anybody was watching the game or or would on social media when this was happening, this is a very, you know, scary moment. <laughs> like d- during and even following attempts by the medical staff on the field to revive Hamlin uh, uncertainty reigned as the league was slow to decide whether or not to continue playing, uh, even uh, while players were unsure if their teammate Hamlin was even still alive. And and so players came together from both sides to basically end that debate mm-hmm. and made it clear that, yeah, no, we're not going back out there and playing a football game when we don't even know if this guy's breathing or not. Yeah. And I mean, um, a really wonderful move from the players there because there's very little doubt in my mind that the NFL would have taken the Amazon route and said, just work around your dead coworker. Oh yeah. A hundred percent. And I will say, I don't, I should have looked this up before the segment. I don't remember exactly who it was who posted about this, but one of the, the, forms of discourse I saw going on on Twitter after this was somebody posted, you know, like what happened and they were outraged that the NFL was even considering continuing the game saying like what other, you know, industry would have a player maybe die or a worker die and then keep going. And like, that's a great moral stance Mm -hmm. to have. But one of the things that the discourse really, you know, did kind of bring out from a lot of people is that under capitalism, most industries would treat and do treat their workers like that. I mean, Amazon was one of the instant like ones that came up the most because Mm -hmm. how many times have we reported on this show about people being killed in Amazon warehouses? And then like the people are just like, well, we'll put a tarp and then you just keep working. Sometimes they, sometimes they do stuff that's even as pathetic as stacking boxes around the person who has died. It's disgusting and thoughtless. and, And that's so, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's really one of the things that this incident did, though, was bring the reality of that mm-hmm. to a national audience, to everybody who's talking about this at the time. And so, like, one of the things, though, that I wanted to talk about this incident, because obviously, you know, we're not a sports show, we're a labor show. But one of the things, though, that came out of it was at least for a very brief period of time, which has now already ended, because now now it's playoffs and he, he he's alive, so we're not going to talk about this anymore. But for a l- brief window there... There was a moment where like an act, there were the actual general public was willing to look at what are the labor conditions that these players work under. And there was a fantastic, uh, I mean, I mean, people always point it out as a rant, but I don't think that gives it credit because like my man had the receipts mm-hmm. and he did the research for this. So I think rant is selling it a little short. I would say this was a true polemic <laughs> laid out there against the NFL by Cleveland sports commenter, Garrett Bush, who 
I mean, he went on for like five minutes. He was ready for this stuff to call out the NFL for their failure to protect or support the players. And so I'm just going to run down some of the really important facts that he laid out in, in, in his statement about the conditions that these workers face. So like, for instance, he pointed out that because Hamlin is a very young player, very new to the league, he's only played for two years. He's not vested in the league's benefits program. So if he was never to play again, which is a real possibility when you have cardiac arrest on the field, then he's not going to see any lifetime benefits from the job, despite the fact that it's the job that caused his injury. Mm-hmm. And like, because players have to be in the league for three to four years, depending on their position to qualify. But many of the most dangerous positions in football, which <laughs> unsurprisingly tend to disproportionately be held by black players, they average a shorter career than that three to four year qualification term. So, like that lets the NFL off the hook to pay for the ravages that the sport takes on the bodies of so many of the players that it exploits for the $21 billion in revenue that the NFL makes every year. So it's essentially a two tiered system. Yeah, I pretty much. Yeah. Cause you have like the situation for players that tend to be whiter, mm-hmm. like quarterbacks and and they tend to have a longer career so there's a lot fewer of them that get bounced out of the league before they qualify for all those benefits but say for running backs wide receivers cornerbacks some of the 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 positions where you're hitting these collisions at max speed Mm -hmm. a lot of those players are out of the league after only two years and they get nothing and so, like, Bush, in, in, in his polemic, also noted that in the last CBA, the NFL demanded and got slash slashing cuts to disability payments to players who need them from what had previously been set at a maximum. These are, of course, these vary depending on the player and on their individual circumstances. But they had been capped at $22,000 a month, which may sound like a lot of money, but when you've seen how things like, say, CTE... Mm-hmm ravage players lives after the game that is the type of care that somebody with severe like a traumatic brain injury can need could be more than that and and so that got slashed in the last cba because of demands from the nfl from twenty two thousand a month to four thousand dollars a month that's a huge cut yeah and and it's not as if cte only affects a couple of players in the worst case. Like there have been studies that show that it is near universal Mm -hmm. in players at not only the professional, but also the college level. And like it can leave people with debilitating symptoms for decades, not that long after they get out of the game. And, and so in addition to that, the NFL uses a special private board of specialists that it appoints to approve benefit payments to players. And that board can deny them even if the Social Security Administration, which it itself only approves, uh, and and I don't know if this stat's right, but the stat that he gave was about 15% of applications. That honestly sounds high to me Mm -hmm. um, for, for the Social Security Administration. But so even if you clear that hurdle, this private board of specialists from the NFL can just say, oh, no, uh, you're, you're not actually disabled. We're not actually going to pay you anything. Which is ridiculous because disability, I mean, like, my dad is on disability, and he has been full, like, basically fully disabled for, like, 10 years, and he only got his disability last year. 
after fighting mm-hmm. for it for a really long time, getting it for a short period of time, then having it cut off because, uh, <sighs> you know, they, yeah, no, it's fucked up. Uh, disability is, listen to the death panel, folks. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, but yeah, and and then getting specifically into the issue of concussions, which is, of course, the big one for, for so many NFL players, there was the big landmark settlement a few years back where the players successfully sued the NFL for covering up the the spate of concussions caused by the sport but even since that settlement he pointed out that only six percent of the the settlement money has been paid out and 60 percent of the claims that have a qualifying diagnosis have not been paid so like the nfl is like oh okay no we understand we fucked up we should have recognized the problem of concussions and done something about it earlier but don't worry we're going to set aside this big fund and it's going to help it's a billion dollars it's going to help pay for all these problems and then after they get that big headline they set up all this bureaucratic bullshit to make it impossible to actually access the money it's basically like you know the privatized healthcare system in the US in microcosm again uh by the nfl and they're not even happy with that. That in the last CBA, they also demanded cuts to pensions for players. Uh, so, like, and the pensions don't kick in for players until they hit fifty-five, even if you're vested in it. Despite the fact that players in the NFL have tend to have very short careers and often a very high rate of injury while young, and and the NFL demanded that pension payments get slashed from fifty-six hundred dollars a month. Which, like, if you need specialized medical treatment and you're not having it fully covered, that's that's not enough. That's no, not tiny. enough money. And they slashed it to $3,000 a month, which, like... is barely enough to survive. Yeah. Like, that's basically... You have a minimum wage pension, more or less. Like, if you live in a state with, like, a $15 minimum wage. But, like, yeah, it's... And this is the, the league that constantly professes how much it cares about its players. Meanwhile, being the only... Uh, sports league in the United States of the top four that doesn't give its players fully guaranteed contracts. So um, one thing that I do definitely think that we should do, uh, cause you know, I'm just pulling these stats out of this excellent, uh, you know, polemic that, that Garrett Bush put together. So I, 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 and there's a, there's a very impassioned bit towards the end of his statement that I think we should just drop in here. Cause I, I can't do it justice. <laughs> so uh, yeah, we'll, we'll drop that in here. This is a savage sport. Men are dying every week, and you covered that up during CTE, and now you want to act like you the top of the food chain because you got the CPR people on the field all the time? That's the least you should do. You're not going to pay that man's... You, you, you're not going to pay that man's tuition for his kids. You're not going to give him no disability money. You're going to do nothing. All you do is collect them big checks, and we go play fantasy footballs, and I hear these dudes thoughts and prayers for a whole damn two hours. Y'all don't care about them kids. These young black kids is putting on the line. And you telling them what they put on the line ain't worth it because you know why? Because you don't want to pay for somebody that's broken and battered and can't take care of themselves because it costs you money. So it is all about money. And I heard nobody talking about no contracts and he's sitting up here cashing these checks. We worship these owners. They do anything they want to. Anything. And as long as the product is good, we salute it. I'm pissed off today because ain't nobody talking about the real stuff. 
There's people out there, players are saying, they just want to wait for us to die. I like the NFL just like the rest of y'all, but I'll be damned if I'm going to sit up there and pat Roger Goodell on the back for running this organization the way he does. They run it like a criminal organization. Sick of it. I'm tired of that, man. I just had to get that off my chest because all this stuff, you ain't talked about what this boy going to go through. This kid could be damaged the rest of his life. And we talk about making up games. Care about making up no damn football games. And, and so, yeah, I mean, you can hear like the passion in what he's talking about and how fucked the situation is for so many players. And I just want to highlight like one of the things that he didn't mention in there, but I really think that more people should know about and that the NFL did an incredibly good job burying this story. So, only last year, or sorry, it's not last year, in 2021, I forget that it's 2023 now, uh, <laughs> but so only in 2021 was the NFL forced and only after a big struggle from the players union to stop using what they called race norming mm. in their calculation of benefits for claims in the concussion settlement. Now you might be wondering, well, what the fuck is race norming? And that's a good question because it's as fucked up as it sounds. So race norming is basically just openly bringing back racist eugenic language from the 1920s and just trying to put a bunch of even, like modern scientific lingo around it. What it is, is it is a, a practice of specifically basically robbing black players of medical benefits by declaring that they have a, quote, lower cognitive function, end quote, as a baseline. Basically, it said the league put in their concussion settlement that they shouldn't have to pay black players as much money as white players because the black players were starting out from a position where they had less to lose. And I, like, it is incredible to me that the NFL got away with putting that in this settlement and was not immediately pilloried by the entire country for being like, that's like a, that is something like the KKK would write yeah. <laughs> into a contract. Like it yeah, is it's, absolutely it's, ludicrous how racist that is. It's, it's blatant eugenics. I mean, like you, eugenics is, can be, can show up in many different covert forms. Uh, but this, uh, just to say that, you know, black players, black people just have a, are, are just dumber in general or, or whatever they're trying to say there, just so on its face, racist as fuck. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, like, look, we're, we're obviously very happy. <laughs> Genuinely, it was a huge relief, you know, to hear that, that Hamlin is doing, he's reasonably okay. I don't know that that's, we won't know, I'm sure, for a long time what the actual damage was from suffering from cardiac arrest on the field. But the fact that he's, you know, able to be awake and cognizant and talk to people, all very good signs, very happy about this. But I'd want to emphasize, like, while this this case caught a lot more attention, like, it's just the latest in a long, long history of really horrifying incidents that highlight how racist and exploitative the policies of the NFL are. And I say that as somebody who's been a longtime football fan. So, like, I'm not I'm not one of those people who's just like, I hate football, and so I'm going to have an axe to grind. I like watching football, but 
the sport is fucked. It's too dangerous. Mm -hmm. Like there are too many of these young kids that are going out there and putting their lives on the line and ending up a broken shell of a person because of the fact that this league doesn't give a shit about the players. It only cares about how much money it can extract from them before they're broken. Yeah. And so like, we need fundamental changes, not only for the safety of the players, whatever that ends up being, have an actual like scientific medical team combined with the players union coming up with whatever the, the right thing to do is. But we also fundamentally, and probably before we're ever going to get that, we need a change in the ownership structure because like the fact that you can just have some billionaire own a whole team and, and profit from all the, the, the work of these players who are literally like chopping years off of their life by going out and playing this sport. And these people are just raking in all the money without ever putting anything on the line. Like that set of incentives from capitalism are ultimately the root cause of why these things don't get fixed. Mm -hmm. And and we need a system where you have either like a combination of like the municipality, the town, the, the team is in and the players themselves being the actual ones who own and run and manage these leagues. Cause that's the only way with, with actual worker control that we're ever going to see a truly safe and non-exploitative version of major league sports like this yeah well the solutions to these things are structural because the problems are structural and as long as we're talking about structural problems let's talk about a new one that the tories have introduced over in the uk yeah this is a this is another one of the big stories that was that happened this past week with the tories trying to speed run making our predictions correct yeah, yeah, so uh, Rishi Sunak's government proposed a new legislation aimed at completely banning workers in many industries from striking. The law aims to enforce, quote, minimum service levels, which would cover workers in the NHS, schools, the rail system, border enforcement, firefighters, and nuclear power plant workers, basically all of the most effective workers at striking. It right. would allow companies to sue unions and fire workers who strike without leaving a certain level of service intact, essentially making any effective strike action in these industries completely illegal and this is not any kind of like new attempt this is the latest in a long line of recent attacks on the right to strike across the so-called democratic west governments in the u.s uk canada and south korea and other parts of the capitalist core have all blocked workers from striking in the past several months highlighting the fears of the growing militancy of workers in response to the massive cost of living crisis facing the global working class and it's really reassuring to know that they don't have any new ideas <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, absolutely. And it's funny because we're seeing unity of not only action by these capitalist governments, but also rhetoric. Mm -hmm. Because in this in this law, you're having the same sort of bullshit that we heard from Biden about the rail strike of, you know, I we care about the rights of workers, but we just can't have these strikes being disruptive to mm -hmm. our economy. They're using that, and it's the same line that Yoon used in, 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 in South Korea. I don't know if Ford said that sort of thing in, in Canada, but I think it was something like that. But yeah, it's, it's all about this idea that, that workers have to go to work if it would be disruptive if they don't. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, yeah, it's fucked. But, and, and so like government sources confirmed to The Guardian that union members who were told by their employers to work under this proposed minimum service requirement and then said, uh, no, we voted to go on a strike, 
would be allowed to be fired. And the new law would also, and this is a big one, back employers to bring an injunction to prevent strikes or, because, you know, we see that all the time, mm-hmm. but or and to sue the union for damages afterwards if they go ahead with a strike. That's the big one in there. Um, and, and so, like, you know, we, we, we've talked about something sort of similar to this supposed minimum staffing arrangement because, you know, healthcare workers generally, when they go on strike, there's always that agreement, at least in the, in the U.S. and the U.K., of like, okay, we are striking, but there will be a certain number of people in the emergency room because, you know, we're healthcare workers. We understand, like, there needs to be emergency services available, and so there's a certain amount left there. Mm-hmm. But that's not the same thing as this bullshit. <laughs> like... And, and it's so extreme, even the Blairites in labor are against it. And there hasn't been much that they've been against lately. So that's how you know this is getting draconian. Yeah, <laughs> this is so bad that Keir Starmer can't whip out the old, I would actually encourage them to go further. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's exactly. insane. Yeah, and I mean, labor said that they would repeal it if they got into power. But like, you know, do you believe them? And uh, maybe more important than what labor has to say about it, union leaders have roundly condemned the attack on workers' rights and vowed to fight it. So we heard from Sharon Graham, who's the general secretary of the Unite Union. And Sharon said, quote, yet again, Rishi Sunak abdicates his responsibility as a leader. Whatever the latest scheme the government comes up with to attack us, unions will continue to defend workers. And we also heard from the Trades Unions Congress, the largest union federation in the UK, who called the legislation wrong, unworkable, and most certainly illegal. What a British way to just slam on something. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they also called it a clear violation of the Human Rights Act and a violation of the fundamental human right to strike. The Federation launched a nationwide campaign calling on all workers to join to oppose the legislation and protect the right to strike, which is kind of interesting. I, I, it seems like there's a non-zero chance that this kind of blanket attack on workers might provoke a blanket or general strike. <laughs> Hell Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and so, like, one of the responses to this that I thought was most apt was NHS workers who came out and were like, oh, oh, now you want a minimum safe level of staffing. Oh, okay. And so, like, uh, Unison's head of health workers, Sarah Gordon, said in a statement, quote, the public and health staff would welcome minimum staffing levels in the NHS every day of the week. Oh. That way, people wouldn't be lying in agony on A&E floors or dying in the backs of ambulances. But limiting legal staffing levels to strike days and threatening to sack or fine health workers when there are record vacancies in the NHS show proper patient care isn't what ministers want, end quote. Wow. And and the heads of the GMB and RCN unions who also cover healthcare workers have also come out and condemned the proposed law. And I think that is the perfect way to point out the hypocrisy in all this to people. Because again, as we've talked about, the workers at the NHS have been fighting for fair staffing levels for decades mm-hmm. at this point. And the Tories have never given a shit about that before. But now that they started to strike, it's like, oh, well, we have to make sure that we have enough people at the hospitals that care doesn't decrease. And it's like, motherfuckers, you never cared about that before. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> you only care about things when it's convenient. Otherwise, you mm-hmm. pretty obviously just care about money. And we did also hear from everybody's favorite uh, union leader, Mick Lynch, RMT general secretary, who said when talking with the Tribune, quote, it looks like conscription, really. That is a completely repressive set of legislation. It means that striking will probably become ineffective in many cases and that the worker as an individual has no right to strike. It is a huge challenge to effective trade unionism and a suppression of our human rights. We can challenge that in court, as the TUC is suggesting, but ultimately it's going to have to be resisted in the, on the streets through campaigns like this and possibly through industrial action. The RMT can't do that on its own. We need everyone else with us. Wow. Just another, uh, that non-zero chance just went up just a little bit. <laughs> right? Yeah, no. And I mean, I was, I was really glad to see that because, you know, whenever this happens, we always see appeals to like, this is illegal. Mm-hmm. We need labor to fight this. Da, 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 da. But as we talk about so many times on the show, if you want a reform or you want to block a draconian law under capitalism, writing your senator is not going to be the effective way to do it. Mm-hmm. It's worker action and it, united worker action in the form of class struggle is the only effective means to securing a positive reform or preventing a negative reform under capitalism. And the fact that, that Mick Lynch is pointing directly to that to say like, look, yes, we should fight it in the courts. And I'm glad the TUC is doing that. Sure. Cause of course, you know, that can be helpful, but being like, look, we want to stop this. It's going to take people in the streets because that's the only thing that stops anything like this. And I'm really glad that, you know, the heads of major unions are already talking about that because like, the Tories are fucked because mm-hmm. they have no plan. Their only plan is to continue the austerity policies that have got the country into the situation it is in now. And so they're just going to keep doubling down unless they're forced to stop by worker power. And so like, I, I you know, I, it, it is wild that this came out like a week after like the boldest prediction that I could come up with for our predictions for the end of the year was, Hey, what if, uh, what if the strike wave in the UK, you know, got worse? Cause the Tories kept doing bullshit and then they threw the Tories out of power. And yeah, like it really seems like they're trying to make that happen. Yeah. How's that managed decline going? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So moving on to our last story this week, and I, you know, I will mention it. This is the first time we are not ending with Starbucks in a long time. Mm. Uh, it, nothing against Starbucks Workers United. We love the movement. There just wasn't a lot of news in, in that, that region this week. So we wanted to end with rare, not only rare good news in America, <laughs> but rare good news out of a government agency. What is happening? <laughs> so it's a, it's like this, the entropy of the last few years has just gotten so wild that anything can happen. Now. <laughs> it, yeah. Well, it's, it's like the, the, the Democrats like concentrated so much anti-worker energy in crushing the rail strike that there's just like, Oh, there's a remainder here. Uh, mm-hmm. we got to actually do something good. It'll hit this, we'll throw a dart at this board and we get, FTC votes to ban non-compete clauses. There we go. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Yeah. So like this was something I definitely wasn't expecting to see. So this is came out uh, last Thursday on January 5th, the federal trade commission, the FTC proposed a new rule, which would serve as a blanket ban on requiring employees to sign non-compete clauses as conditions of employment and would prevent companies from enforcing such clauses and void all ones that currently exist. And I mean, 
that would be pretty huge. Like we've, we've discussed previously on the show how some of these clauses have been weaponized against workers. I mean, I think probably the most egregious example that people may have heard of was the fact that like Jimmy John's was making workers like who made sandwiches there sign non-compete. So they couldn't go work for like subway. Subway. (laughs) That's, I don't even have words for that. Yeah, it's it's just absolutely ludicrous and and it but it points to, you know, how under our system there's total freedom for capital and absolutely no freedom for workers. And these this these non-compete clauses don't just include the ones that are very explicitly like you can't go work at a, one of our competitors, but it also includes clauses like the trap clauses that we've previously discussed that force uh, workers who leave or are fired from a company to repay training costs that the company required them to take. So like, for instance, the workers at PetSmart, who we talked about in relation to this, that agreement would now be illegal, totally null and void under this proposed rule by the FTC. And one of the things though, that I definitely learned from this story was how prevalent these are. Like I knew that there'd been more and more companies using non-competes uh, you know, over the years, but according to the FTC's own analysis, it, they currently cover like 30 million workers. Damn. That's gotta be America. like more than one in 10 workers. That's, <laughs> yeah. That's it's be it's like, like one in, it's like one in five. That's actually. wild. <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, I, their, their arguments are, I can't imagine arguing that, that uh, someone's going over to subway to sell Jimmy John secrets. That's, well, <laughs> right? yeah, so so they they claim that these clauses are necessary because they need to protect their intellectual property and the competitiveness of their companies. Now, competitiveness we we've said many times on this show is vague and always a cop out, but intellectual property is even more always a cop out. <laughs> well, it's it's also intellectual property is a fake thing. That's true. Like that is a intellectual property is a scam. Think of made it, up by like, by imperialist countries to try and preserve their technological dominance. Intellectual property is like what if an NFT wasn't a picture and it was just a scam? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was a scam and you didn't even get a JPEG for it. Like, Damn. but yeah, and ultimately, what this comes down to again is, oh, we love the free market, but not the free labor market, mm. not that one. <laughs> We don't like that one because <laughs> ultimately, really, what these are about, again, they're always like, we have to protect our individual property. We have to protect our competitive. That's not what these are for. The purpose of these agreements is to restrict workers' wages because if you reduce the number of places that people can go as alternatives for work, they are less able to leave your employment in search of better wages, which allows you to suppress the wages that you pay. That is why these non-compete agreements exist. That's why they've been becoming more popular. And surprisingly, that's why the FTC is suggesting getting rid of them. To the point, and they're actually saying, again, because these have gotten so widespread and so many workers are affected by them, uh, this what is essentially a form of legalized blackmail, um, that getting rid of these non-compete clauses would raise wages in the U.S. by over $300 billion. Holy shit. <laughs> yeah, like, that is the equivalent of, if you, you know, if you take their claim of there's 300 million American, or not 300, 30 million American workers are affected by these clauses, that is on average an increase for those workers of $10,000 a piece. Yeah, that's massive and would have repercussions <laughs> all through the quote unquote labor market. 
Yeah, and, and, and the other way I think that's important to think about it is that if the wages would go up mm-hmm. by $300 billion by eliminating these, that is $300 billion in surplus value that is being stolen from these workers on top of the surplus value that's already stolen from them just as the standard process of capitalism. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah, this whole thing is fucked. But, like, there are already some states that ban these sorts of agreements, like California, North Dakota, mm-hmm. and Oklahoma. And some of the, some states restrict their use to only workers above a certain income threshold. But even in the states where these agreements are illegal, many businesses still impose them because there's no real enforcement, and most workers are not aware that they're illegal. So it's very easy for the company to just say, oh, you have to sign this, don't worry about it. <laughs> right. Because, like, who's going to read, like, you know, a 40-page end-user license agreement type thing that, you know, yeah, like, I don't know what this is. Yeah, it's got standard language. Don't worry about it. It's just yeah. your standard language. Well, and, it, you know, pursuant to that point, this proposed rule would require the companies to actively inform them. So that's, like, getting getting that kind of communication from your employer isn't something that should have to be mandated by a federal agency maybe (laughs) Um, right but uh, the business owners have uh had a lot to say about this mostly bad uh so we heard from sean heather who is a chamber of commerce official our favorite uh where the fuck did you come from organization, the chamber of commerce (laughs) uh, who said, quote, actions by the federal trade commission to outright ban non-compete clauses in all employer contracts is blatantly unlawful. What? I'm sorry. Do you know who the FTC is? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So highlighting what will likely be the main avenue of legal attack there on the rule. By the ruling class, the chamber claimed that Congress never delegated the FTC authority to issue such a rule, echoing many recent successful attacks on the administrative and regulatory arms of the state by right-wing forces over the past few years, which is interesting and worrisome that like that level of credibility has kind of been applied to what is essentially sovereign citizen style, mm-hmm. uh, like, um, what are the rules lawyering? <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is one of those things where they're like, uh, the FTC can't tell us what to do, which, you know, you, you hear that and you're like, that's literally their job. Okay. Dale Gribble. <laughs> like you said <laughs> that no. And we laugh as we should, but unfortunately, like you can tell that the language they're using is very specific mm-hmm. and it is for a purpose because if, if anybody paid attention, for instance, to the landmark Supreme court case last year, wherein they ruled that the EPA did not have the authority to regulate carbon emissions, mm-hmm. It was almost the exact same language where they're like, well, Congress never said when they created the EPA that specifically they could regulate carbon emissions, so they don't have that. So, like, basically by making this attack, they can be like, well, we went through the law that formed the FTC and nobody said anything about non-compete agreements in there. So, right. clearly. Also, the, 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 the part that says outright ban, which could mean that they're ready to, you know, take some sort of a concession on it but to still keep some sort of vestige in there so that they can then claw it back later more easily. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's like a close cousin to the whole originalism thing that we keep hearing Mm -hmm. about from the Supreme court. It's, it's just a way of doing right wing shit through the judiciary (laughs) or a regulatory agency. One thing that I, I mean, just to go along with the, the, how aggressive the FTC is being on this, the day before they announced this rule, they actually announced they were suing three companies for 
use of non-compete clauses in an already illegal manner, like prior to the issuing of the rule. So, and, and issuing a rule, a big rule like this is a lengthy process. It takes usually years, unfortunately. Uh, and of course, with the incredibly fierce opposition they're facing from essentially universally from business organizations, you know, like the trade groups, like the chamber of commerce, this will assuredly be caught up in the legal system for years. But those caveats aside, I got to say, I was surprised. This would be a great rule change, and I really hope this actually goes through because this would, again, 30 million U.S. workers are affected by these. Like, that's a that's a huge amount of people. Hey, it's I $300 also, billion dollars in wages. That's wild. Yeah, yeah I yeah. also like seeing people who have my name and spell it the same way. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, Lena Khan, the, uh, the head of uh, the FTC. Mm-hmm. Yeah, doing good work. <laughs> Well, speaking of good work, it looks like we have arrived at the meme review. <laughs> we did the good work, That's folks. Right. It's time for yeah. the reward. It's time to have a nice little treat. And our first meme is actually about getting a nice little treat. Uh, but maybe it's not as nice as the, you wanted because somebody has just posted <laughs> a photo of what is ostensibly like a, an Uber Eats or something like that order. Uh, and it is a... It's a Cheese sticks in front of the AC. It's, it's cheesy bread. Cheesy bread in front of the AC fan in a car, and it says AC on full blast for the non-tipper. Thumbs up emoji. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like I put this in here, even though it's like not actually. It's not technically a meme, but it's the sort of thing where I know I, I there's plenty of people who would see this, mm-hmm. especially like people who refer to themselves as middle class. <laughs> who self-identify that way, who would see this and get so mad Furious. and be so indignant. They're like, oh this is gosh. violating the sanctity of my Grubhub order. Yeah, I'm going to have to turn you... my live, laugh, love thing away from me for a minute. Yeah, yeah I uh, I have talked about the shitposting group in my city I'm in a couple times, and they lose their fucking minds like oh. they they like there will be someone who does doordash who says uh yeah i don't actually take any orders unless the tip is good enough and you see all of these fucking karens and shit coming in there and be like you should just do your job why are you complaining <laughs> why are you complaining because yeah, <laughs> why are they, you on facebook because i just want to say full support yeah. to this delivery driver because here's the thing if you're ordering delivery and you're not tipping fuck you yeah fuck you <laughs> That's yeah. right. Like I get that delivery is expensive now and it is, but you have to incorporate the tip into the cost in your head because again, if somebody's working delivery, they're getting paid dog shit mm-hmm. and you need to tip them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, ideally hand them cash. I mean, I know that wasn't, yeah. you know, COVID and everything. Well, you might still not want this, to, but you know. If this makes you worry that, you know, you didn't put a tip on there cuz you want to tip cash, put in the memo cash tip. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like, yeah, absolutely. So. And then be like, you could say that you got one dollar from me. Tell them that I'm a piece of shit. Take that twenty bucks <laughs> and just put it in your pocket. That's right. <laughs> well, and another thing that we like to profile in the meme review is workplace safety literature that That's appears right. way cooler than you know other things. Like, so this one, this one is uh, a high low, you know, safety piece. You know, like a, a forklift. So this is. If you're forklift certified, obviously this is not what she would do. It shows a forklift going over a ramp, like a like a like one of those bicycle ramps that you, you see kids have out in the street or whatever, going over what two, four, six, eight barrels 
Yeah. Eight <laughs> barrels. This thing is flying off. The- There's a little X over the guy, that says, and then the, the text on it says, do not indulge in stunt driving or horseplay. And just like- <laughs> I wasn't going to tell you called it stunt driving. <laughs> <laughs> I, I The thing is, I saw this. The first thing, I'm just like, Fuck, now I want to see somebody on a forklift jump a bunch of stuff. Yeah, you'd have to build a pretty strong <laughs> ramp to support a forklift, but... <laughs> yeah, because it's... And it's one of those... I wonder, like, if... I, I mean, it's the internet. Everything's fake. Everything's mm-hmm. was made for the meme. But it's one of those things where I genuinely wondered. I'm like, if you're a forklift safety manual writer, I would suggest not putting something like this yeah. in there. Because for me... <laughs> If I'm learning how to drive a forklift and I see a card like this, I'm immediately like, fuck, I never thought about whether a forklift could jump over a bunch of stuff. Now I got to find mm. out. Well, and I think that really <laughs> what they've done here is through encouraging this is they've made one terrible mistake is that if you notice the forks on the lift are down at the bottom, that's going to smash true. right into that that ramp. You want to make sure that when you're jumping those eight barrels that that <laughs> forklift is at least as high as the ramp itself so that when you're going at it, you know, you're not going to smash it with the forks. You get it on that front wheel, hitting there, getting that proper angle for the proper amount of speed so that when you hit that jump, you nail it. That's right. <laughs> and so the next one we've got on here, I mostly just put in here because, like, uh, this was posted in the Discord and I immediately identified with it because I just started a new job. <laughs> but uh, so it's just captioned, IRL me versus me for the job interview. <laughs> and the picture on the left is a, a woman soldier in a full red army outfit standing in front of a, a portrait of Stalin. And then the portrait on the right is a woman in like a hard hat and a dress shirt carrying a bunch of blueprints with a nice stock photo thumbs up. Like, yep, I'm here to do this job that I am definitely not being exploited for. Yeah. <laughs> Proper bump cap use, you know? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's definitely weird to go from, you know, uh, hosting your favorite communist labor podcast and then going into work and being like, hello, boss. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I respect you. <laughs> yeah, everything we're doing here matters and is definitely good. Uh, our next meme is one of my favorite things in the world, which is a screen cap of a tweet where the like counter is rolling over as they're screen capping <laughs> it. And, and the tweet says, Can I copy your homework? Yeah, just change it up a bit so it doesn't look obvious you copied. And then on the left, you have the QAnon shaman. And then on the right, you have some kind of Brazil themed. QAnon shaman. <laughs> I saw people up on from the protest. I saw people saying online that this is an old oh. picture from another pro Bolsonaro oh, event really? uh, last year. But either way, it's weird that they would just copy the QAnon shaman whole cloth. Don't do that. Yeah, what's wrong with you? <laughs> yeah, that's something that it did that that really baffles me about like reactionary thought is like you see this guy, the QAnon shaman, and all this stuff, and you're like, you're not like, oh man. That guy looks like a fucking idiot. (laughs) Instead, you're like, I should copy his attempted, you know, appropriation of indigenous culture and face paint and and join a ludicrous putsch attempt and get thrown in jail. (laughs) Yeah, no, I just thought it was really funny. I mean, you don't have a lot of imagination. Well, uh, the last one's my absolute favorite. (laughs) Does anybody want to read it? (laughs) Sure. So this last one, I mean, people I'm sure have seen this format a bunch of times, but... It's, uh, you know, the, 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 the well-dressed guy kind of looking at the camera, like it's got the smile, but it's very much a like tentative one. Yeah. 
Like it's a very forced grin. <laughs> It's and like it's, he's and it's taking got that... a selfie and saying, I need to smile in this photo. <laughs> yeah, well, and it's just like, if you try and tell me that humans by nature are inherently greedy, selfish, and corrupt, I'm fucking stealing something out your house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Oh, man. I... I'm fucking stealing something out your house is the funniest thing you can say after any if statement. <laughs> <laughs> It's true, though, because the thing is, like, that sort of attitude is so annoying. Mm -hmm. Like, you run into so many people who think that the height of, like, deep philosophical analysis is to be like, you know, I think people are just selfish, and that actually justifies me doing terrible things all the time. All right, I'm going to eat your Skittles. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like, I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to reinforce that belief for you right now. Yeah. I'm about yeah, to steal absolutely. a whole that brick of butter so from annoying. the fridge. <laughs> like, I've done deep analysis, and what I've decided is that the other 7 billion people are all bad. Yeah. Wait, John, I've meditated steal. on this for a long time, and I decided that my dad was right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wait, you're going to steal a stick of butter. Where are you? Do you have a bag? Are you putting it in your pocket? Uh, yeah. Uh, let's say I got my cargo pants on. Okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Just walking in and emptying their drawer of deli meats like, oh, yeah. into my pocket. There oh, yeah. Deli meats, <laughs> carry gold. all the good stuff. I just think that when you put butter in your pocket, it melts. <laughs> You gotta move fast. (laughs) Just like sprinting, and there's like liquid butter pouring out of your cargo shorts. Yeah. That's me. Uh, That's a Tuesday. All right. (laughs) Well, with that, we are going to wrap for this episode. We want to thank all of the listeners for checking us out, following us, and sharing our episodes with other people to help us get the word out because we are an entirely listener supported podcast. And if you'd like to support us, more on the financial level, you can go to patreon.com slash work stoppage and give us $5 a month. You'll unlock all of our overtime episodes. We've actually just started this new series about Jimmy Hoffa, which is incredibly interesting. And really, I mean, if you've ever wanted to to try to debunk or, or, or you know, at least push back on the notion that all unions are just corrupt, yeah, you should check it out. Uh, you know, you can write us a review anywhere, and, you know, we appreciate that. Follow John on Twitter at FacebookVillain. Follow the pod at WorkStoppagePod. You can listen to Beep Beep Lettuce. You can listen to Red Game Table. And as always, labor peace is not in our interest. And solidarity forever. Solidarity. Solidarity, everybody.